don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall, and today we have Jay Michelson for you. He is the author of several books about contemplative practice and meditation, uh, including Enlightenment by Trial and Error, which we'll be talking about in this episode. He's also a journalist, uh, writes for The Daily Beast. He also uh, writes for and works for 10% Happier, the amazing meditation platform and podcast um, that uh, many of you know. And he's an all-around amazing guy who I also count as a friend, uh, a friend for over a decade now. So you'll hear that we're pretty comfortable with each other and really get into a lot of amazing things about what it's like to be in the world trying to make progress uh, in your happiness and spiritual practice, whatever that means, and uh, leading a more interesting life. Uh, Once again, we recorded this podcast in February before we knew we would all be dealing with a global pandemic, so we don't talk about it here. Uh, But I still think a lot of what is said is very relevant to the times, and I hope you enjoy it. So here is Jay Michelson. Welcome, Jay Michelson. Thanks. It's fun to be here. Absolutely. So uh, obviously, uh, we're friends. We've known each other for a very long time. But you're in today because you've written a book called Enlightenment by Trial and Error. And it's actually um, essays that you wrote quite a while ago. Um, you want to just talk about how this book came together and what it is? Yeah. So my new book, my newest book is also my oldest book. Because uh, as you described, it's mostly made up of essays that I wrote when I was starting out on what I consider the spiritual path. And I wanted to turn this into a book for two reasons. First, I always felt I've written eight books at this point, but I always felt that this stuff I wrote, which was mostly published in an online magazine that I started uh, in 2001 called Zeek, Z-E-E-K. I always felt this was like my best writing on the subject. And I think part of the reason for that was there's like there's a real freshness in the writing that I just find really, I feel really tenderly toward these these essays, and uh, I really just wanted it out there. And the second reason that I, I put out the book was this was the book I most wanted to read when I was starting out. You know, a lot of spiritual books are people who think they know some answers, and they tell you answers, myself included. <laughs> and I, I just, this book was written when I had a lot of questions, and I felt like it was valuable. I would have loved to have read this book when I was starting out. So I took these old essays, I, I edited them, I reordered them, I put them into what I think is a kind of coherent order, uh, and here's the book. Yeah, one thing that I noticed is that it's really wide ranging, like you're wrestling with a lot of topics uh, that were part of your spiritual journey, and they really range from you know, Seder dinner and traditional Jewish stuff to Burning Man and sex and sensuality and um, Buddhism and meditation retreats. And I'm wondering if like, what even is a spiritual experience? Can you (laughs) define how you look at that in this book or otherwise? Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, everyone obviously defines it differently. One of the hallmarks of spirituality is that it tends to be more subjective and less 
objective. I think religion is also subjective, but it has claims or pretends to be something objective. And certainly it's it's collective where spirituality, even as you've defined it a little bit in the question, like it's about experience. Um, so it could be a shared experience, but it's ultimately an experience that an individual has. Um, you know, for me, spirituality is, is really just living intensely. There's an essay in the book called Am I Religious, which asks you know, what religion means, what spirituality means. And for me, it's it's having some connection to a deep experience of, of reality. Uh, whatever that is. So it, that could, that's very broad. So that's why Burning Man is in there. That's why art is in there. And circuit parties, gay circuit parties are in there. And experiences of family and of doing justice work and political work. Um, I, don't think the categ- I don't think the word spirituality has to be so vague as to be nothing. But it's clear that people have this, people have this experience of intimacy with reality in a lot of different contexts. All right, I have to ask, how do you go about being a religiously having a religious experience at a gay circuit party so there was an organization for a while called q spirit which i talk about in the book which actually the thesis is that actually these are very primal ecstatic rituals right so it's a lot of people coming together with not so many clothes on there's an intense amount of of energy of erotic energy in the air there's thumping tri sort of music that's ecstatic and repetitive uh, that leads to a trance state. There's some use of medicines. The only piece that maybe was missing is the consciousness of that, um, that this is an ecstatic ritual. And so Q Spirit used to go to gay circuit parties, which for listeners who don't know what those are, you know, massive 5,000 people, you know, all around the world, you know, very large production and high production values and do ritual in those spaces. And for me and for them, it was about recognizing what was there. And, um, I loved, you know, sometimes people go to those parties just to dance with someone else. And there's certainly a lot of fun in that. But there's also just melting into the experience itself. And many times the the, the god or goddess would ask me to dance with her <laughs> instead of with whatever hot human being was nearby. Yeah, but don't we expect, like, when we say something is religious, that it's also kind of would protect us from, I don't know, hard drugs addiction and ruining your life like might happen in some of these more wild spaces where there's definitely ecstatic experience but also hard partying happening no absolutely that's true it's definitely true that religion also ruins people's lives when it when it's taken to a a level of let's say fundamentalism uh, which resembles addiction or when there has to be things have to be a certain way in order for for me to be okay i think that for me is the is the difference like if I, if I can enter into an ecstatic or a sensual space where my own okayness is not in question, um, I can enter that with a spirit of play. Uh, if this is about me feeling validated and me not being okay unless there's a certain experience, then yeah, I'm going to need more and more of it in order to feel okay, and that feels very destructive. Yeah. You know, one of the things that made me feel like talking about all these experiences at Burning Man and um, these wild ones fit in this book was that you really talked about something that I don't think people talk about enough, which is the profound weirdness of meditation. And like, (laughs) uh, you would also talk about these visionary states you were in and these long retreats, and they would feel and sound a lot like adventures and with the the weird hippies in the Mm -hmm. desert or something. I'll just take uh, a look at read you one passage from early in the book. Hans is flipping through the book now, listeners, which I find very flattering. <laughs> so this is from, I guess, a meditation retreat that you were you were on and when you were there for a week. And you say, a spirit guide appeared. Who else for me? Um, 
but Lou Reed. So you're meditating and Lou Reed shows up. Um, Lou said, you think that's reality? I'll show you reality. And I flew through the white space to a primeval scene of cavemen, naked cavemen, fighting some sort of creature. The biggest cavemen were like offensive linemen guarding against the beast. The nimbler ones were in back throwing spears. Lou asked me where I fit in, and I realized that I, along with one other effeminate, wimpy, gay uh, cave fag, was running for cover. Uh, we took refuge in a delicate place of women in esthetes. Pathetic excuses for men. So <laughs> there's a lot there in terms of feelings about self and identity right. and to unpack. But one of the things that I notice is like, oh, Lou Reed showed up in your meditation. And of course, <laughs> I've had experiences like that that are just weird and woolly meditative experiences. But I feel like it's a very well-kept secret almost. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how these things fit together? Sure. I think what's in my heart, though, is first to say that my, my the next paragraph of that piece reflects on the intense homophobia, sexism, and femphobia of that reaction. So a lot about that experience was seeing the self-hatred. So I just want to make sure to, that that's that those sentences you read aren't just left there, that that, that was actually the subject of some reflection, uh, was to see the intensity of, of that self-hatred. Um, and that was actually a really profound moment for me. That was on my very first long meditation retreat. That was a seven-day silent meditation retreat. So it was very early on in 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 my practice. Um, you know, as for unusual experiences being a secret, yeah, I think there's there's some reasons. There's one reason that is sort of a good reason, which is that early on in the '60s and '70s, a lot of mm, privileged white American spiritual seekers would go and try to have the most outrageous experiences possible, and you know, maybe compete with people having the best LSD trips. And like, well, I had this shamanic vision, and you had that shamanic, and there was a lot of comparing. Uh, happening, which is supremely unproductive and spiritual competitiveness. Yeah. And spiritual materialism. And exactly my, my spiritual experience is bigger than your spiritual experience. And, um, you know, a lot of these can be, I think I shared this one in the book, uh, because it was a profound opening for me and a difficult one, you know, seeing all, all of that, uh, self-hatred and internalized stories from society about what men are supposed to be like. But a lot of times it's just a, a fireworks show. And it can really distract or, you know, from what's really important. Yeah, it strikes me that, you know, these weird images just, they turn up the dial of intensity and emotion. Like maybe in an abstract way, you can be like, yeah, maybe I'm wrestling with internalized homophobia. But somehow when Lou Reed shows up with right. a bunch of naked cavemen, <laughs> it drives the point home. That that a way I need to deal with this mind. now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think, uh, you know, I... I've seen the same thing, that same dichotomy maybe happen on, or that same dynamic, I should say, happen in medicine work, where if what we're doing... Can you just define medicine work real quick? So working with plant medicines, which often have otherworldly or quote-unquote hallucinogenic components where you see visions and you, and you interact with entities or seem to interact with entities, you know, there's a lot of fireworks that happen in those experiences. And um, it's possible to just be there for the fireworks show. Uh, and that really misses the point. I mean, that's not, it's great. It's a lovely fireworks show, but it's not where the real healing happens and where the real transformation happens. So I think um, it's one reason there's reticence to go into that. And even in, you know, in some other chapters in the book, later on in the book, as, as the path deepened, you know, I, I, I trained as a teacher in a in a, a practice called jhana, J-H-A-N-A, in which meditators enter very profound absorptive states that are filled with bliss and filled with much, much more than any 
it's very hard to really describe those states without seeming like, you know, drenched in superlatives and hyperbole, but they're really profound states. And a lot of folks really don't want to talk about them at all. Um, because first of all, it like dangles this little toy out in front of you, like here's some awesome ecstatic states. But second, it kind of means it looks like chasing, chasing the pleasant, you know, like, oh, I want some of that good stuff. Whereas the power of meditation is being present with whatever's arising, not just the good stuff. So you just raised a lot of arguments for not sharing how weird these states. <laughs> well, you be. asked. <laughs> uh, but, so why did you go there in this book? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I with all of those cautions in place, I think, for, you know, first of all, I said, I mean, I think I only shared the ones that seemed to have some important piece toward the development of my own spiritual path and thus that I thought would be of interest or relevance to someone on their own. Um, there's plenty others that were just amazing. Um, but yeah, I think, look, we're, we're living in a, obviously an information saturated time. I think a lot of these boundaries around what we talk about and what we don't, it's not that they're not valid or important. They are. And there's a lot of ego still involved, even in myself in sharing these stories. But I, I don't think the sort of esoteric impulse is as, is as valid in 2020 as it was even 20 or 30 years ago, let alone 2000. I once, I mean, I, I did a Tibetan esoteric teachings retreat uh, about two or three years ago, and you're literally not, not allowed to talk about the practice. You're not allowed to talk about the visions that you see. You're not allowed to talk about anything. And then at the end of the retreat, the teacher, uh, Tibetan Lama, mentioned that, you know, there is a website which now discloses all of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we had just done several days of pretty intense meditation, and it is a very um, colorful practice. You know, there are visions and there are things that you see and stuff like that. And, and so, you know, it just was, we just laughed. I mean, here we were at the secret Tibetan teachings retreat, which are only passed by, from, passed down from teacher to disciple. Oh, except it's also on the internet. It, it strikes me that a big theme of this book is that a lot of your, let's call it spiritual awakening, um, in this book at least, is, you know, running on subversive tracks that you wrestle with from both the, the Burning Man experiences running around, as well as, you know, I think having Lou Reed be your avatar of like awakening is, is not, you know, what is taught from the Torah, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it actually, uh, it reminds me of this essay that comes a little bit later, which is about the sort of conflict between um, at least a belief you had at the time that mainstream culture is basically good and wants to take care of people you should trust people in white coats at harvard right. and the fact that you were still getting a lot of your spiritual nectar from the wilderness um mm -hmm. the the things that you you know weren't part of the traditional culture and I'm, I'm wondering where you are on that question now hmm that's that's a really interesting one that no one's asked me on i've been doing this book tour for a little while and no one's no one's brought that one up i think um when it comes to spiritual practice, contemplative practice, I'm definitely even more in the mainstream sucks camp. And I'm now part of the spiritual mainstream. <laughs> so one of my jobs is teaching at 10% uh, Happier, which is a meditation app. And I love bringing meditation and mindfulness to a broad audience. I love it. But the part of the and that, that so that part of the mainstream, I love because it's it's meant to be we're trying to do it with integrity, we're trying to bring teachings that are transformative to a to a wide a really wide audience there's another kind of, of mainstream spirituality though that i think is um problematic you know where there's just a lot of woo woo or there's a lot of promises about how you can affect reality or there's a lot of of um 
what my teacher Rabbi Zalman Schachter Shalomi called angel shit, which is like getting into the doodads and the spiritual brokenness just for its own sake. So not because, not for what the angels can teach you, because they can teach you a lot, but like, oh, I'm seeing angels. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about a second ago. Um, it is very strange for me that, you know, I used to teach Kabbalah Jewish mysticism. And at the time, 15 years ago, it was sort of the high point. Madonna had been, was into it and the Kabbalah Center was really popular. And a lot of popularizers were out there. And it was very bizarre for me that here was this tradition that was secret for 1500 years. And it was now even more secret than ever, because what was out there in the, in the headlines or in the, in the spiritual mainstream was just so, so lacked integrity, I felt and still feel. So I think I'm, I'm there even more. I think um, now, unlike when I wrote the book, I'm ordained as a rabbi and as a meditation teacher in a Sri Lankan Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So I've now taken on certain roles within those structures, fully aware that those structures are really problematic. And I, so I think I've moved farther to the left. I don't know if that's if it's a right left thing, but farther to the weird in my spiritual and contemplative practice. Um, but now, you know, a, a big change from the book. I now have a two year old daughter. She loves lighting the candles on Friday night. She loves the blessing over the wine. She loves just the ritual and the kinesthetic elements of, of our Jewish practice. And I love that, too. There's something really beautiful about those folkways, and they've survived because they tap into something in, in the human spirit. Right. One of the questions you ask early on is sort of how far is too far? And I wonder if you've answered that question. Yeah, I, I have sort of for myself. This is very subjective, and I think even that essay was subjective. One of the So the one person, a character in that essay called Go As Far As Possible was a person I met at Burning Man named Fish. And she, she spelled it F-Y-S-C-H-E. Um, she believed that 9-11 was an inside conspiracy. Um, and she believed that she had a psychic connection with Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. She wasn't quite a stalker uh, of Billy Corgan, but she definitely, they, were, they had exchanged some communication and it was, it was not as two-sided as Fish thought it was. And, you know, I don't know, you know, I think there's like some question a gray area between out there and mental illness. Uh, and she was in that space. She's very high functioning, fun, has since written a couple of books. I loved hanging out with her. That felt too far. Um, it felt like when reason really gets surrendered, you know, because what, what conspiracies are in and what aren't. A lot of people who think that 9-11 was an, in, was an inside, inside job also think it was done by Jews or the Mossad or Israel. So it feeds right into classical anti-Semitism. And I just think whenever we start messing around with conspiracies, you know, these days there's a lot of media conspiracies going around. I work for the media. I write for the Daily Beast. And some of the stuff that people say about me <laughs> is is profoundly disturbing. Some of our friends, the people, friends we have in common. Uh, you know, the media is totally in the pocket of the big corporations. Of course, some media may be in the big. But, you know, deeper than that, like don't trust anything you read in the media. Don't trust. It feels to me when they're when we get to a, a real conspiratorial layer that, that I've gone too far for, for myself to feel comfortable because I know what it is to be on the receiving end of those conspiracy theories. Right. Paranoia is a state. <laughs> it is <laughs> a thing. A pleasant one. And, you know, some paranoia is justified. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm a fan of Robert Anton Wilson, a sort of amazing paranoid sort of figure from right, active mostly 70s, 80s and 90s, esotericist, you know, just brilliant stuff. But at a certain point, it also kind of goes off the deep end 
where rationality can really not be trusted anymore. And he believed he was receiving messages from Sirius, the dog star, uh, and was in touch with interstellar entities. And he may have been. I mean, I'm still agnostic on all of that. Back to medicine work, you know, that they're in that work things are seen and experienced which don't conform to the sort of standard cosmology of material scientific materialism and so any of us who are involved in that work have to negotiate that in some way and for me it leads to a lot of not knowing and not certainty and i just don't know i don't know what these entities are or aren't i know what my experiences are and they're they're very clear and how i interpret them i've been in cognitive dissonance for for over 10 years since i started that work um, so anyone who thinks they know what's really going on is clearly full of crap <laughs> at the same time, you know, ironically, conspiracies are thinking that you do know what's going on. You know, there is, here's what the answer is. It's this thing. And it's that kind of certainty that it just feels really dangerous to me. I don't know if I fully answered the question of, is there too far to go? But that's where, that's a line that arises for me now. You know, it feels like you kind of have answered the question. You know, what I was interested in is, I think that question of like how far is too far really does hold a lot of people back from, mm. you know, doubling down on their meditation practice once it gets weird, going to the crazy party, like listening, like, because, you know, I grew up surrounded by channeled material too, and it's bonkers. <laughs> 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 My parents were very into that stuff, and I, you know, it's it's legit. A lot of it is legit, cr- sounds crazy, and I think is in a mm. lot of cases. Mm. But you can sort of wade into the weirder parts of your meditation practice and your experience. As long as you remain uncertain, it sounds like, mm-hmm. about what it means. As soon as you know, I know in a conspiracy way, or I know like exactly what this voice is, it's the dog star from, you know, da, 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 right. you're in more dangerous territory as soon as you claim that you have some sort of special knowing. That sounds right. It also sounds really common, right? I mean, you know, 35% of Americans identify as conservative evangelicals. A large portion of those are charismatics and people who either speak in tongues themselves or go to services where that kind of thing happens or believe that. I So I, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and during my mother had sort of a long period of illness and I was down there a lot. And on Sundays, I went to a mega church that was right nearby to her house, actually, just a couple of miles away. And just the theology but not just the theology in any abstract sense the lived theological experience of these people was so profoundly weird like it was weirder than anything on a meditation retreat that jesus was talking to them every day that you know we all hear voices inside of our heads but the theology was anytime you hear a voice inside your head telling you to sin that's actually you because you suck and you're fallen and you partake in original sin. So never trust yourself, only trust this outside source, which is Jesus who does talk to you also. That I found that sort of Gnosticism, you know, that dualistic idea that was just shocking and terrifying to me that's, that millions and millions of Americans believe that. So it's not just like, yeah, the weird stuff on the meditation retreat. I mean, it's it's what's happening in, in what, 10% of Americans' religious lives. Also, you know, I've noticed that it, that thing about you said about it holds people back. That's true even on that quote unquote shallow end. I mean, there's a lot of people who we encounter at 10% Happier who are scared of meditation because they think they'll lose their mind or they'll go crazy. or And that's just by trying ordinary garden variety, boring mindfulness. <laughs> that, And I say boring in a good way. Uh, you know, very sort of straightforward, simple practice that anyone can do that's not esoteric or weird, but does seem esoteric or weird. So wherever you are on the spectrum, I guess it always feels like that one next step is is the one too far or could be the one too far, even though it, it isn't. Do you think meditation is dangerous? The short answer, no. I think any kind of I, I think 
it can be it can be dangerous in two ways. One, you know, for folks with mental illness, which is either diagnosed or not, it can be really unhelpful. So sometimes, so people with dissociative disorder, for example, want should do a kind of meditation practice that is grounding in the body, like body-based mindfulness, should not do a lot of visualizations or absorptive practices where you lose connection with your body because their brains are already have a propensity to dissociate. And that can be that can be very harmful for them. So it's it can be dangerous for certain people. And it certainly can be dangerous. Like maybe this is less dangerous and more just problematic, but it can be dangerous as what's sometimes called spiritual bypass. So I do my meditation, therefore all of my problems are solved. So I can still be a toxic masculine jerk, or I can be a patriarchal meditation teacher who sexually abuses my students, or I can be any number of horrible things that happen in real life, right? So some of the leading meditation gurus of the last few years uh, have now been thankfully removed from power in the wake of Me Too and the meditation community. So that's spiritual bypass. It's like, well, because I'm so enlightened in this one area, therefore I've taken care of all of my psychological baggage in the other. And that's clearly false. And Because you have enough practice skill to reach a deep samadhi or meditative bliss state whenever you want, which sounds great, you can just say, oh, I've solved ethics when you actually put no effort in there. Yeah, put no effort in and in total delusion that and and that yeah that you've taken care of your own of your own stuff and it doesn't work that way you know meditation won't help you help your heart rate necessarily it won't put you in in heart healthy state you need you know good diet and exercise to do that and likewise it won't help you uh, solve your problems of toxic masculinity and and sexual predation if those are problems that you have so how do you create supporting ethical practices for meditation because i think most people who want to try this stuff don't want to become monsters <laughs> right hopefully not and i think you know i think well it's an interesting question as with all of the sort of clergy sex abuse scandals you know is this the power that creates this dynamic that enable or are these somehow are these bad people who seek out power uh, and who then use it for evil things it's sort of a chicken and egg question I think for normal people, ordinary people, I think the danger, that kind of danger is really low. Certainly in, in what I would call entry level meditation, um, we're not like developing psychic powers, right? I mean, we're being with the breath and noticing feelings as they arise. And if anything, as I've written a lot, you know, I think it really helps shine a light on where there are places of tightness or stuckness. So I think it actually helps us become better people. Um, but certainly as we get further along the path and deepen in, it's, it's kind of the same, it's like another dimension of what we were talking about a minute ago. Like, okay, just remember cars are real. (laughs) You know, that's a, that line is, uh, from when I was a college student, we would get either, you know, really drunk or really high and you could like wander out of your apartment. I went to school at Columbia here in New York city and you just had to remember cars were real. (laughs) You can be tripping, you can be having whatever experience you want, but you still don't cross the street because cars are real. And, you know, I was 18 when I, (laughs) when I learned that, and it's been true for 30 years that, you know, you leave the meditation cushion and people are real and relationships are real and you don't get a pass and you don't get to um, change the nature of ethical relationships because it may feel okay to you because you're in some state. Okay. I don't know if I quite buy that argument because even if like, you know, you're a young man or woman trying a little bit of mindfulness meditation for the first time, there's going to be a certain percentage that really like it because it feels good mm-hmm. and it does a lot for us. Uh, who, you know, start to dig into their practice, start to discover that this is where they want to bloom and flourish. 
and this is where they have charisma and that they're pretty good at teaching these things and all of a sudden you know they're the new set of teachers mm. and mm -hmm. you know when you're where are you getting your like how do these people engage in a some like ground like ethics morality sort of stuff because it's not necessarily in sitting there and watching the breath there's there's no ethical dimension of that no sure i mean i mean look in, in the buddha dharma in the buddhist world the ethical precepts are a prerequisite uh it goes sila samadhi panya sila is the ethical behavior you work on that first then samadhi like how to sit still and quiet the mind and as you've learned to quiet the mind then you get to some wisdom like you get insight that comes from the quieted mind any one of those pieces without the other it's it's not complete um so any that's not really how meditation is being taught today we're just skipping the ethical prerequisite uh, yeah In i mean most I it... meditation classes mm. no no calm app has like a test that like well i don't want to talk about the read. other apps but right. our Sorry. app certainly <laughs> our app certainly does and we're we emphasize it again and again and again and again you know it's the guiding teachers on 10 percent happier joseph goldstein and sharon salzberg who are longtime buddhist meditation teachers and who while transmitting in this way in a secular way still i mean sharon salzberg is all about loving kindness and ethics and looking at your stuff and being more kind so i don't agree i don't know if i could numerically put my plant a flag in the ground and say most do teach some kind of ethics certainly everyone grounded in a tradition does um you know, it depends on the tradition. Let's say, I don't want to name it by name, but there's a there was a popular teacher in the 60s who started a, a form of practice that's now very popular on Wall Street. And also the Beatles were into it for a while. There's not a heavy, a, not a large ethical dimension to that practice. It's mostly about concentration, getting super calm. And it works. You chant the mantra over and over again, you will definitely enter a bliss state. And that's very restorative. You do it for 20 minutes twice a day. It, it suffuses the rest of your life. But in that practice, it's true. There is no overt ethical component that's there. So, yeah, it takes all kinds. One of the things that I really struggle with here is that um, the ethical dimension does feel like a prerequisite to me. Um, and it's really important for all those reasons if there have been predators and you want to make people feel safe. And I think it's on us to make it feel safe. And so usually, you know, it's we go back to you know, the more traditional teachings for that. And that's also where a lot of the problems are. Yep. You know, the homophobia, just to name an example that pertains to both of us. Uh, sometimes the sexism, the misogyny. Pretty the, much always, yeah. Um, all of those are part and parcel of that. And I think that's why a lot of people reject those teachings is there's some leftovers that are just not meeting our modern sense of ethics or person beliefs. So I just wonder if you have a, any thoughts on how to navigate that. Yeah, I mean, I personally have taken a different path from throwing out the meal because of the leftovers. I think it's possible with some careful discernment to see the leftovers, which is the sexist, patriarchal, homophobic, racist trash, and see it clearly and not be deluded that there's some pure tradition that's you know wonderful in all of its manifestations. That certainly is true in Judaism. It's been true in, in my form of Buddhism as well. All Western practitioners should read books like Buddhism Without Patriarchy, and or there's a number of books now on, on Buddhism and race. Um, you know, I think it is possible to not throw out the meal because of the leftovers, but I certainly honor, you know, if it feels like it corrupts the path. But I, I just think that the, the value of these spiritual technologies is experienceable. I've seen it in my own transformation, trying to be less of a jerk. I think it just takes that orientation and any good teacher is going to orient you in that direction um, that, you know, if you're just having your own personal experience, but not 
trying to translate that as best you can into loving kindness and justice and action in the world. Yeah, I would question the value of that teacher. Um, so I, I don't know if it's the if it's the activity of meditation or mindfulness. I, I definitely do believe, though, that and I've talked about this a lot in the book uh, toward in part three of the book that it seems really clear that our political moment is one of is a manifestation of deep, profound psychological pain and spiritual alienation turning into unexamined shadow material, right? Anger, rage, othering. I mean, these are the worst what's in power now, not just in the United States, but around the world, Russia, China, India, Brazil, hyper-nationalism, ethno-nationalism. This is like the amygdala of the male human being, human brain, you know, the reptilian brain, the, the part that's us versus them and has to fight and otherize and dominate writ large on a political stage. So then I, I turn to sort of what's the, and this, I don't want to get into the neuroscience of meditation, but like, just, you know, what does meditation do? I mean, it grows other parts of the brain. It grows the parts of the brain that allow for reflection and that allow for seeing your stuff more clearly and seeing and, and for coexisting with the pain that you feel because you, you were taught that being a man is one thing and having a certain kind of job is one thing and being able to support your family, you could do it in a particular way. And now the world has changed. And so for me, the personal, the, the spiritual and the political are, are closely connected. I'm not like a Marianne Williamson person, but I, but I do think that spiritual technologies are essential for the better angels of our nature, of human nature, to prevail over our baser instincts. And right now, our baser instincts are running almost every major government in the world. And it's a terrifying moment because we see that the human species may not be evolved enough to survive this century in the way that we have so far. Uh, you know, in the last few thousand years. And that's terrifying to think about. And so I, I, for all of the shadow stuff that meditation doesn't address and all of the possibilities of spiritual bypass and of vulgarization of mindfulness and narcissism and all that stuff, I still think that the benefits outweigh the costs because I, I don't know of any tool that's available to people on a mass level that can upgrade the brain and the heart the way that meditation can. That's my best pitch. I like it. <laughs> and I, I actually agree with you. It was part of why I started We Croak is just, um, I think we need some tools for promoting one, letting go of states of mind that one are just hugely suffering to be in, like rage, paranoia, um, disempowerment, and two, something to get us to stop and think about what, whether what we're doing is right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. One of the cliches about, uh, about politics is like the people say about climate change, let's say, and environmental stuff, like what kind of world are we leaving our children? It's like a cliche, I think. But now as a parent of a young child, it is weird. First of all, a lot of my parenting experience has, has tracked every cliche that everyone says a million times about parenting. And this is one of them. It just feels really, I think when we're more cognizant of our own mortality, uh, and whether we have children, biological children, or whether we're just part of, you know, large families, families of choice, you know, that, that will endure after we're gone, we have to just wonder what the hell we're doing. Can I say fuck on the podcast? Yeah. Just like, what the, Scream what the fuck are we doing? And, you know, if I, I think those, to me, those are very connected. You know, if this is about my experience and that's the be all end all and, hey, I'm going to be gone in 30 or 40 years, you know, fuck the rest of the world. Yeah, sure. But, you know, when we understand our mortality, we understand that actually it's not like that. 
yeah, we're going to be gone. And then there are all of these other people and animals and beings that are still going to be here in potentially a hellscape. Like, what are, what are we leaving for them? And so for me, I, the, the cognizance of mortality is paradoxically a cognizance of what survives us, like what lasts longer, because I won't be here in 2100, most likely. But God willing, you know, my daughter might be. And what that world is will look like if we stay on our current course is terrifying. What occurs to me about what you just said is it's on the one hand, absolutely true. It's what we need, how we need people to think about it in order to care about the next generation and what we leave. And two, it's, it's kind of a mystical state of mind of like, Mm. what do I care about? That's bigger than myself. Um, Mm. And if you can't answer that question, you can't think like that. Right. Yeah, that's right. I like that you said that because I think what was in my brain as I was speaking was one of, was sort of a medicine experience of dissolving into the vast cosmic matrix. And you know, I don't know what, what value ontologically to give that experience, but let's say we trust it, you know, that matrix is still going to be here. And the real thing is not Jay, this little ripple of this little wave on the ocean, you know, but the ocean and just continuing. I'll see if the, yeah, the metaphor works like we're polluting the hell out of this ocean. And so even if my wave is kind of OK, like there's a profound sickness that we're causing uh, to the collective, at least on this planet. Um, the planet will be here in some form. The ants may win or the rats or the roaches or whoever, but the the biodiversity, the, the, the mother that we know is slowly being poisoned. And so for me, when I, when I own my own finitude that I'm off the stage pretty soon, well, yeah, why is my own pleasure worth poisoning this planet? I mean, it's a, it's a profound and big claim, and I, I like it. Just give more people meditation, give more people, you know, um, Burning Man or whatever it is that gets them to dissolve a little bit, find something bigger than themselves, and then whatever their political opinions or how they think they should get it done, at least they'll be committed to doing something that will help. Yeah, it's it's just a less dangerous version of Timothy Leary's idea of putting acid in the water. You know, like if we really put LSD <laughs> in the water supply, this would not be good, right? Everyone would out of bed. It would be terrible, right? But it is about how do we spread this form of contemplative practice of upgrading the mind and the heart. And it, it'll take different forms for different people. So I'm all in favor. Just, uh, you know, I'm, as we're recording this uh, just last week, uh, I guess Mattel makes Barbie and they just came out with Breathe With Me Barbie. It's the first Barbie to meditate. Oh, my goodness. And um, oh, I see you don't follow my Facebook closely enough. It got some great comments when I posted it. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, a Barbie in Lululemons uh, sitting cross-legged on a meditation cushion. And uh, there are even little thought bubbles that you can put on Barbie, like how she's feeling at a particular moment. So obviously this represents a, a new low in the vulgarization of Does meditation. Does she wear athleisure? Uh, I thought it was Lululemon, but it was athleisure in general. <laughs> Lululemon is athleisure. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, but, uh, you know, so obviously this is hilarious and ridiculous. And I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. Because obviously Barbie for, for left-leaning, right-thinking, progressive people, you know, is problematic in a number of ways. But she has a big reach. She's got a huge platform. And if meditation gets mainstreamed to the point where Barbie moms and their daughters, assuming it's pretty gendered, are are consuming it, that is great. 
you know, and even if 90% of people who do it are just taking it up as a kind of way to calm down and, and they're not doing any deep work, 10% are. And I just feel, you know, I also feel like America is polarized in a number of ways. One of the ways it's polarized is the fastest growing religious denomination in America is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning no religion, which includes the spiritual but not religious. And religious conservatism, fundamentalism is growing, right? So the center is hollowing out. So there's a lot of people who are being who are seeing a, a choice between a very traditional, oppressive, dangerous, in my opinion, religious conservatism and nothing. And nothing doesn't have to mean nothing. It might just mean no organized religion, but actually a wonderful spiritual practice that's nourishing and has a community element, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm really excited to maybe be helping to provide that. And you are, too. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds great. <laughs> for full, an, for, full disclosure, I'm wearing joggers that probably qualify as athleisure. That's right. So I'm not against it. I'm just, you know, it's, it's the stereotype. <laughs> you don't want to lose funny. that endorsement when the book comes out. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks so much for sticking with us as we take a quick little break in the midst of this awesome conversation that you two have been having, Hansa. We wanted to remind you all about WeCroak's latest and greatest offering, WeCroak Leap. This is an subscription inside of the app, and it gives you access to the largest database we've ever created, 1,000 quotes, as well as a weekly challenge that everyone with WeCroak Leap uh, gets to do. And it's, it's pretty marvelous. We love the response, and everyone who wants to try it um, can try it for a whole month free. Um, so that's four weekly leaps to, to get to do with your friends and family and see if it's something that uh, that you enjoy. Yeah, we're really proud of it. Uh, the largest database of quotes, really interesting challenges, and more stuff we're building. Be some of the first to join Leap with us. It's going to be great. Also, of course, if you uh, mostly love our podcast, we are uh, we're doing it. We're interviewing more people. And um, thank you so much for the people who are leaving reviews and helping other people find this podcast. It really um, means the mo so much to us and our guests when we hear from you. And, uh, and with that, let's get back to the conversation at hand. You know, one thing I really love about this book, which... Um, I think it's special to this book actually is it really one of the things that makes it enjoyable is it's like ecstatic writing hmm. like you're having spiritual experiences and some of that i don't know aura feeling specialness is coming through in the text and it hmm. makes it exciting Thanks. to read um and then you start to take up some of those questions like does mysticism prove the existence of god and hmm. things like that and i'm just I feel like mysticism still means a lot to you. And I'm wondering if you can answer that question now, like what does it prove if anything, or why is it valuable? Uh, another, another simple question. No, just kidding. I think, I mean, just briefly, that's part of why I did want to put this book out. I don't write like that much anymore. Um, in 2008 and 2009, I did a five month silent meditation retreat. It's kind of a, a big Dharma year for me. Uh, I settled into a certain confidence in the Buddhist Buddha Dharma path that a lot of the questions that are alive in the book kind of settled for me. Um, the mind learned ways of settling down uh, that it didn't still hasn't unlearned uh, 10 years later. So a lot of that freshness and that ecstasy isn't in my day to day as it was. Um, there's a sad a little sadness around that. 
you know, my spiritual path now is my daughter. I mean, that's the main thing I'm doing. First of all, <laughs> I can't go on a seven day meditation retreat for years, certainly not this year. So anyway, you know, it's shifted. The zone of spiritual practice has shifted for me. Um, you know, I'm still in that don't know place around a lot of that mysticism. Um, some of the experiences that I discuss in the book, and I, it's funny because I thought about writing this in the introduction, but I, then I decided not to. Some of those experiences I do profoundly doubt now more than I did then. They seem to be more about where the mind was than something about unity with the universe. I wrote a book called Everything is God, and it, it was a lot about the fruits of some of those experiences and, and coming to a kind of pantheistic sense of holiness in the world. Um, I still, it's, that's just not, it's not the center of my spiritual consciousness now. Um, I think where mysticism enters in for me actually is, it is in medicine work. That's different, uh, from where it was, it was pretty peripheral at the time this book was written. Now on the mystical side, that's probably most of it. And I'm still in a don't know in, in the, in the, at the peak of a, uh, of a, um, tryptamine experience where there's a dissolving of the self and there's an otherworldly reality that one is in or is there is zero doubt that this is the true ground of reality that everything is just the vast matrix lattice of being that is satchit ananda being consciousness bliss that is the ground of truth it is obviously 100 percent true it's truer than anything that i'm experiencing right now definitely you know, and then 20 minutes later, when I'm making a sandwich downstairs in the kitchen, it's like, well, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, maybe it was a meta drug experience or it was a this or that. And it's I, I've just been in an exchange with a, a fairly well-known uh, writer on Buddhism who just did this, uh, just tried this particular medicine, uh, which this is the, the toad medicine that some people have heard of uh, from the Sonoran Desert. And um, it's funny. He said for him, the question of is this reality never arose like it was always just a wonderful drug experience and that's what he was anybody appreciated it and loved it and had a great experience but that's what it was and then you know you emerge from that experience with a lot of loving kindness often and it's a little bit like a you know an mdma kind of come down you just feel like suffused with bliss and then you can do a lot of really good work you could just bliss out or there's actually a, an opportunity in that state to like bring up some difficult stuff and bring it into the experience and just see new perspectives on it which is what he did so he loved it, had a great experience, but it never dawned, it never occurred to him that like, this is reality. For me, that was the obvious truth. It was like, holy shit, this is <laughs> like, it's true. Like everything the mystics have said is true. Like here it is. And I'm like, thank you so much to this extract of toad venom for, you know, enabling me to glimpse it. You know, it took me, it used to take weeks on a meditation retreat to get to this place. And even then, not with the visuals. And now, you know, thanks to this men medicine. And it is interesting, you know, in so many of shamanic, certainly with ayahuasca, like gratitude and gratitude and gratitude and gratitude just emerges so naturally. Do you think the toads feel like that all the time? <laughs> they are pretty chilled out. Yeah, I don't know. I definitely want to know who's the first person who, because you can't even lick the toad. There's like a myth that you'd like, you lick the toad and get high. That doesn't even work. It has to like, you know, a lot with ayahuasca, which is made of these two plants, which you would never in a million years think to put together. And like who were, it definitely lends credence to the supernatural reading of these medicines that, who would ever think to like find this random toad and it, only this one toad like the other toad doesn't have the venom this toad's venom is lethal so somebody probably 
had that and died yeah. and here we are that's it's, probably a topic of discussion for another day because we could talk for an hour about <laughs> non-western modes of knowing and <laughs> how to do that and what they say um and how much that challenges yeah, that's, that's the way we definitely going to be your other podcast um but the question i wanted to get to next was that the whole second section of your book is called unraveling which i took to mean that as a result of many of these profound mystical experiences that the life you had made up to that point unraveled it fell apart uh probably unpleasantly at times mm. uh and uh, obviously now i know you that you have a family a child a great job like so many things are right but probably you didn't know that that all would happen mm. when you were going through the unraveling period mm. mm -hmm. can you just talk a little bit about that time what it felt like how was it hard and the unra it's funny yeah it was hard in some ways but the unraveling was actually a a letting go that in many ways felt great um there was so one one way in there's a a chapter in the book called guilt and groundedness where it became it just sort of was clear over doing long lots of long meditation retreats that a lot of what was given value in religious systems and i came from the jewish one was basically a sort of feeling of guilt, like what you'd know deep down to be true. And I saw that this was false time and time again. Just that Lou Reed example, I mean, that, you know, that vision of myself was something I felt deep down. But I felt it deep down because of 30 years of internalized homophobia, not because it was truthful, but because it was just deep down. Like a lot of stuff that we feel, we're deep, we feel deep down and we're wrong, like, and dangerously wrong. Uh, we feel, you know, white people, I, I, we feel racism deep down a lot of the time. And that and that's wrong. Like, it's not it's not just because something's deep. But as soon as we as soon as we really see that experientially, that just when you, you feel something is deep doesn't mean it's right. A lot of commitments that I had around what felt right spiritually or religiously fell apart also. Um, this may sound ridiculous to you and to many listeners, but, you know, even now it feel deep down, it feels wrong to eat bacon because I was raised not eating bacon, right? And, and I'm not a vegetarian, so it's not a meat thing. I was just raised with a sort of cultural taboo that has no basis in any re real reality, not really anyway. And, and so it's absurd, right? It, and I see that it's absurd. And that was true for a lot of the ways in which I was structuring my religious life um, and moving away. The, the Jewish particular, the, the sort of Jewish system is a holistic one that holds together really well. It's a sort of holistic worldview that touches every part of your life. Um, but once you start to pull the threads on it, it does unravel. Uh, and there was a sort of pain, uh, pain around that, but it also, uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of liberation also. I mean, I don't want to reach for too much of a metaphor, but it was a little bit like, yeah, it's unraveling a sweater that was too tight and that was really constricting. Um, and I know a lot of people still wearing that sweater and I'm just glad, uh, good for them, that's fine, but I'm very glad that it's not on my body anymore. I mean, but at the same time, you've become a rabbi since then. Yeah, but I actually paradoxically became a rabbi because I no longer had any fear, well, any fear, I no longer had as much fear around illegitimacy. Like I'm definitely a non-legitimate rabbi to any Orthodox Jew, not just because I'm gay, but because it was just, it was, I had received ordination from my meditation teachers. I didn't go through a seminary. I didn't, and I, I definitely felt, I didn't want to carry the weight of being a rabbi, you know, dancing naked at Burning Man. Like, would a rabbi do this? Is this okay for a rabbi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was only once I kind of like 
didn't care about that as much that I was willing to then take on this role and this title. And I, and I see why it's so, I, it's helpful for people. Like I see why it can be really helpful to have someone in that. And I do know enough. It was never a matter of knowing enough, which in the Jewish world, that's like a big piece is like, how much do you know? I have a PhD in Jewish thought. I, I know plenty. I know more than most, most non-Orthodox rabbis. So it was never that, but, but the like owning it, like, or, would a rabbi do this? You know, would a rabbi do that? And now I feel like, yeah, a, a pagan Buddhist rabbi would, queer Buddhist rabbi would do that. Like, yeah, a radical fairy rabbi would do that. Um, I won't name the other rabbi because he may not want me to name him, but a, another well-known radical fairy rabbi and I did a conversion under the maypole at the Short Mountain Sanctuary, a radical fairy sanctuary during Beltane. Would a rabbi do that? It sure felt profound and holy and sacred at the time and the conversion has lasted and and the guy is really into being jewish and and it's it was for real and it, it was beautiful but i definitely had to unravel the the sense of no a rabbi shouldn't do that you know a lot of people assume that you know if you start meditating and you know go deep down into the buddhism or into paganism or Burning Man culture or whatever that you really have to leave Let go behind else. <laughs> yeah. your Judaism or yeah. your traditional yeah. like what what about that part of your life do you still cherish and what that leaves you so committed to like the yes and still this yeah I mean part of it is a matter of language and access so I love one of the Jewiest things I do every year is co-lead a Jewish Buddhist meditation retreat uh, Christmas week in Connecticut um, and um I love doing that. And, and it provides not just an access point for people, but a deep mythic language and a community and a culture in which to do spiritual work. And I love that. Um, I had a lot of contempt for my the synagogue that I grew up in, which was sort of a basic conservative synagogue, conservative movement synagogue, which is the centrist denomination in American Judaism in the suburbs. And the services were terrible and the people were hypocrites and some of them were, you know, bad politically. And then when I was there, as I mentioned before, for my mom's illness, I totally re re-examined that. And because these people showed up for her and these people who were in this spiritual this religious community that i had really did not have a lot of love for i started to love it because this community brought them together and not everybody you know you and i are we're in a weird sort of quasi cult you know community so we have that ourselves uh, excuse me <laughs> uh, the radical fairies and and or we have some relationship to that thing whatever it is um and most people don't have that. And, and I love the fact that this Jewish thing provides a space for community and community ritual, um, that it provides sacred time during the week. I love the fact that Shabbat, this, the Jewish Sabbath, is a thing. And it's challenging with the two-year-old to have a 24 hours of screen-free time, but I love that we do that. Um, and I totally admire people who are totally screen-free with their kids. It's mind-blowing to me that that's possible. Anyway, I, so I love the Shabbat, the Sabbath practice. So there's a lot that I really love about it that I don't find. You know, in so one of my books was called Evolving Dharma, and it was how Western Buddhism came to be. Partly it's about that. And, you know, it came to be by... First, it was Asian reformers in South Asia and in Japan primarily. So, uh, so yeah, uh, doing a lot of internal reform work and then Westerners encountering, encountering that. But in its context, B 
Buddhism is fully religious as well. It also has life cycle rituals. It also has devotional practices. It also has community and communal bonds. And it's only this weird Western phenomenon where it's been taken out from that context that I feel it, it's missing a lot. And I, I love those aspects of those ways of relating in community. So for some Buddhists, they're in a Sangha, they're in a Buddhist community that provides those things. Um, for me personally, uh, I'm in some Sanghas as well, but my main source of that kind of communal ritual uh, is the Jewish one. And just to repeat something we said earlier, I, I'm totally on board with anyone who wants to throw out the baby with the bathwater because the bathwater is pretty toxic a lot of the time. You know, for me, I think there's still some value in there. And um, my guiding teacher in that practice or of recovery is the lesbian Jewish poet Adrian Rich, uh, who wrote a poem called Diving Into the Wreck, which is basically analogizes some of what she's doing as a feminist and as a queer Jew um, of diving into a shipwreck to find the treasure, even though she knows that the treasure never was never intended to be found by someone like her, uh, but owning it anyway. And that is, for me, a guiding attitude toward that pro that process of renewal. Right. Those deep roots are pretty interesting and add to the weird willingness of just stuff to encounter lessons. And she she has some line, which I'm, I don't want to mangle, but it's something like she's looking for these precious books in which our names do not appear. And that's my relationship to Jewishness. My name does not appear and my Hebrew name does appear in this book, but my personhood does not appear in the Jewish holy books, except in Little Traces, which which is another book of mine that will happen one day about finding those queer traces in, in scripture. But it's recognizing that we are diving into a wreck and we're not trying to even make the ship float again because it's it's sunk and it's good that it's sunk. The last section of your book is unknowing, you know, getting back to that. I think, one, it's a safety thing. It's not knowing keeps you away from going crazy <laughs> when you're doing these mystical things. Right. But it seems like you also wanted to say something bigger than that. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose that as the name for the last section of your book. Hmm. In a funny way, it was because there was some knowing. <laughs> so okay. there's like a little bit of um, summation other books of mine have more answers to it. In a certain way, unknowing that third chap third part of the book covers some of the territory of the book I mentioned before, Everything is God, which ends in this kind of non-dualistic, panentheistic, pan Jewishy, Buddhisty, pagan hybrid place. Um, but it's also it, it wasn't unknowing. It, it is also so it it lands, but also in a place of I don't know. And certainly the last uh, the last essay in the book, which I think was also the latest written, kind of notices these two two complementary or contradictory positions. So one is the sort of mystical view that the world as we see it is really illusion or just the surface layer. So nothing is real in the way that it looks real. And that's a pretty destabilizing concept. And then on the other side, the polar opposite of all of this spirituality stuff is just delusion. And it's just playing around with neurons in the brain. Scientific materialism is true. All of this is, is you know, it's maybe maybe not silliness if it leads you to be leads you to happiness and to better ethics, but it's certainly not true in any sense. And just noticing that I can inhabit both of those in a weird way. Like there's this kind, there's that, there's that radical unknowing that maybe everything that I had at that point delved into for ten years was false. 
or maybe my ordinary life was false. You know, the whole time that the book was written, I wasn't like a full-time spiritual seeker. I started three Jewish nonprofits, two LGBT ones and one uh, and the magazine that I mentioned before. You know, I, I had jobs. I was I was I was running the queer Jewish organization, professional LGBTQ activist for 10 years, which roughly not quite, but you know, it's like 2003 to 13, so overlaps a lot with the period of the book being written. Maybe that was all delusion. And uh, and that is a world I still live in now. I I, I um I don't know. You know, after this, I'm going to lunch. I'm going to the gym. I'm doing things that people do. And then my daughter gets home from daycare, you know, and I'll be with her. Um, but it might all just be the vast cosmic matrix that we see in our peak experiences. And um, for me, as I say in the last chapter of the book. It's like I want to spend like a little bit more time in that second view, <laughs> because instead of 100 percent of the time in ordinary mind, like I don't want to spend all of my time and it's all one. That's a sort of irresponsible place to be. And I couldn't be there now anyway because of my responsibilities. But if I could spend 5 percent, that would be pretty nice. Probably my actual number is around one ish percent uh, spent in that what the Kabbalists call Mohin de Gadlut, expanded mind. And the other 99 percent i'm just as confused as everyone else when you say you want to spend you know maybe five percent of your time in that deep oneness state like what what is that is that is that death is it the oneness of the universe like what do you what do you get there yeah it's it's death and the oneness of the universe i mean it's death in the sense of ego death um there's that beautiful maybe you've shared it before in, in the podcast this beautiful recording of ramdas talking about uh, from the ego's point of view, death is the end. But from the, the soul or the self or the, you know, awareness's point of view, it's just opening a door. Um, certainly, but again, back to medicine work, where there is that death experience of dissolving. And sometimes there's even the experience of leaving the body and going toward the light and all of those kinds of um, classic experiences of the, the quote-unquote NDE, near-death experience. Which, by the way, I think is a misnomer. When I, If I was just having a near-death experience, it would have been a lot easier the first time. <laughs> it was actually a death experience. That was what was challenging. Um, yeah, it's, but it's, it's a death that's also a life because it's, it's a brief moment of dipping into that which doesn't come and go. Um, just what Satchitananda, radiant awareness, luminous awareness, um, Rigpa, the, the Dzogchen teachers would say, primordial awareness. Uh, the Ein Sof in the Jewish language. Yeah. And so my main meditation practice these days is Dzogchen, this Tibetan practice of small moments many times. And it's just training the mind to settle back, settle back, settle back into glimpse, glimpsing that a little, settling the mind back into that awareness many times a day. And that space for me, that non-seeking, non-desiring mind is definitely accessible and feels like a, a, a ground of groundlessness that's not how we normally experience things and it's a reservoir for me that's yeah my most precious non-possession why do meditators traditionally recommend we think about death so much i think that in a weird way the the most accessible answer in this moment actually is a sort of western scientific materialism answer weirdly enough you know, we're being all of us because we are human animals are being pushed, pulled, pushed toward the pleasant, you know, repelled by the unpleasant back and forth and back and forth. And we're sort of marionettes on a string. 
when we reflect on, I think, our mortality, there's a little loosening of that. And other parts of the mind are able to flourish or flower a little bit more. So because ultimately all of these pleasures and pains, right, are connected to this this separate, this illusion, illusion of the separate self, this separate self that eventually disappears. And we remember what really matters beyond this self. So it goes back, we were talking about climate change, but it's also true in anything else like compassion and how do we, how do we make people, how do we increase the level of happiness and compassion and peace in the world and justice in the world rather than increase the level of suffering and greed and hatred. So I feel like when there's that reflection, for me, I, I actually have a very non-Buddhist response to the memento mori, to thinking about death every day, because it does lead me to a more kind of Thoreauvian, you know, suck the marrow out of life, um, live every moment, that kind of thing. But paradoxically, those are just two sides of the same coin for me, because I, li- I live, I suck the marrow out of life by being more present for it. And that leads me to mindfulness and meditation. So it doesn't, they're not, even though they may seem contradictory, I don't experience them that way. So for me, remembering that life is finite, live each moment, live deliberately each moment, or each day at least, each moment sounds like too much pressure, but live deliberately at least some time of the day. Uh, How do I do that? Oh, I do that by showing up uh, and by being present. Um, So it's sort of that loop a little bit. Thank you so much. The book we've been discussing for the last hour is called Enlightenment by Trial and Error by Jay Michelson. And uh, for any listeners who really like how you think and talk, uh, any other recommendations of things they should check out by you? All of me is, all of my stuff's online, jmichelson.net, easy to Google. And uh, as I mentioned at the top, I, I now, my, my main job now is uh, teaching for 10% Happier. And uh, we have a free newsletter that I edit and often write for uh, at 10%.com slash newsletter. So free wisdom in your inbox once a week. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us for this huge episode. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you hear this podcast. And until then, we'll see you next week. <laughs>